Amen. Andy uh, prayed it right there at the end too. The, um, it is true of all of us. Um, I, my heart is prone to wander. I feel it. Um, but then the great prayer in that hymn, Lord, here's my heart. Take and see. Like, can I ask you the question of the morning? To whom does your heart belong? And I don't mean whom is it to, to, or who is it that you are giving a portion of your heart to appropriately. So I sure hope that you have a special place in your heart for your spouse if you're married. I sure hope you have a special place in your heart for your, for your kids if you have children. I sure hope you have a special place in your heart for your friends, maybe coworkers, et cetera, that God has put into your life. I hope that you are giving your heart freely to others in an appropriate manner. But my question is this, to whom does your heart belong? Who has the right to make demands of it? Who has the right to call it to make sacrifices, et cetera? Because to whoever, whomever has your heart, that is the object of your worship. If you don't know what it is that you worship, just follow a trail. Five roads will lead down to it. Your time, your effort, your energy, your passions, and your possessions. Follow that trail, and you'll find at the end of that trail a throne. And whatever sits atop of that throne is what it is that you worship. That is who has your heart. The scriptures in 2 Chronicles 16, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 9 says this, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Another scripture says this, another translation says it this way, the hearts of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord rather go to and fro, searching for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What does it mean to be fully committed to the Lord? What it does not mean is that you never give in to temptation, you never fall. It does not mean that you are sinless. It does not mean that your heart doesn't go in another direction. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. What it means is a heart that is fully committed to him is committed to continue to come back to the Lord when it is that we leave him. I don't come back to a system. I don't come back to a philosophy. I don't come back to a way of life. I come back to a person. My heart is fully committed to him, so I'm going to come back over and over and over and over again. That's whose heart is fully committed to the Lord. The person whose heart is fully committed to the Lord is not a person who sins less. It's the person who repents more. The eyes of the Lord are going to and fro, searching for whom it is that he can give strength to. Strength for what? To live the life that he has called us to live. We've said many things in this series. We've said that we can always trust God because he is always working. We see these in each and every week. The scripture draws out these principles for us. We're all challenged to stand out for Jesus in the right ways at the right time for the right reasons. Our God in heaven is the one who makes all things possible. And then last week we said this, we hope and despair when kingdoms rise and fall, but we, as children of God, can rest in a kingdom that will stand forever. I don't think it's going to take much explanation for this at all. And the younger you are, the more you will, you will catch this right away. It is difficult to stand when everyone bows, is it not? 
Isn't it difficult to swim against the stream, swim upstream? Isn't it difficult to, to live a life that looks so odd in comparison to those that are around us? Now, I'm tr- talking about things that are true of, of nothing that has to do with morals and ethics. So how many of us find it uh, very pleasurable, enjoyable, uh, brings our heart a great deal of contentment and peace and joy, et cetera, when we dress so odd that nobody else on planet Earth looks like us? It's not how we're wired. We may enjoy that for a day, we might like the attention of the come. We like costume parties, et cetera, but we, we don't do that as a regular life. It's just difficult to stand out. It's difficult to stand when everyone else bows. It's also true, though, in a moral and ethical realm, when everyone around us seems to be not only participating in it, but condoning it, and it has become the new norm, isn't it difficult to take a stand against something when everyone else seems to be doing it? The younger you are, the more you understand this. Now, I am 51, about to be 52 later on this year. Uh, I'm just realizing I'm reaching that age that some call old. Others call spring chicken. But I'm reaching that age, you know, I just don't care as much any longer because I'm older, I'm larger in some sections of the body. I'm married. My wife is forced to stay with me now, so she has to deal with it. Just kidding. Don't, don't tell her that. I, I don't have a whole lot of people that I'm trying to impress right now, and yet I still find it difficult to stand when others bow. You know, my greatest prayer for my children is, is not that they would be healthy, It's not that they would be wealthy. I would love those things. It's not even that they would have a tremendous influence and impact on the world. I would love it if they did that. My greatest prayer for my kids is that they would live a life based on conviction rather than convenience. Above all other things, I'm praying, God, would you so grip their hearts that they live out of conviction? Would you make it such that they can say, With sincerity, they know their heart is prone to wander, but oh, they feel it. And so, Lord, they cry out to you, here's my heart, take and seal it. It is difficult to stand when everyone else bows, but here's what the scriptures tell us. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says it. We're going to see it today in this passage. The power to stand is given to those whose hearts belong to Christ. You know what this story is not about? It is not about the great courage of three young Jewish men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not about their deep-seated conviction and how they lived in such a manner that they stuck it to the government and that God uh, saved them. It's not about that. It is about the power of God being given to the people of God at just the right time so that God could sovereignly use these people for his purposes, for his great honor and great glory. And it's not about these three men. It's impressive, it's inspiring, but it's really about God and his sovereignty. Do you want your spouse, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, et cetera, do you want them to live with conviction? Do you want them to stand when everyone else is bowing for the right reasons at the right time in the right places? And pray that they would live out of a heart of conviction, that they would turn to the person of God and say, God, enable me to stand when you call me to stand. It's a tremendous passage. To whom does your heart belong? 
you have the ability, would you stand? We will not make our way through the entirety of reading the third chapter. We're going to certainly teach our way through it, but I'm going to skip around and I'll try to give you warning as we make our way. If you can stand, if not, don't worry and, uh, um, and just follow along with us. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, 60 cubits. But it I'm sorry, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the promise to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Skip down to verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse eight. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And they declared to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree Skip down to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or set up the golden or worship the, the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Skip down to the last part of verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against them and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Skip down to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered the king and said, True, O king, and answered, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You may be seated. One of the most famous of all the stories in the scriptures comes to us from this great book, Daniel. And right now, if you have been doing what I have been doing as the series has been making its way through, the, the word of God, not the word of David, the word of God has been making its way into the crevices of my heart. And I've just been asking this question over and over and over again. And so I finally decided, let's just make it explicit on this particular week. David, to whom does your heart belong? How many times do I find myself chasing after something in this direction? And how much time does it take me then to repent to turn away from it, and again, to turn back towards the person of Jesus, not turn towards a better lifestyle or a different way of thinking, except to turn back to the person of Jesus. How many 
I'm sorry, let me say that's great. How many occasions has God been nudging on my heart? Here's a conviction that I want to place upon your heart, but I have not been listening because my heart has been drawn somewhere else. The story is told here in chapter three. It's a story that fits in the context of the book and yet it fits as a story on its own. The drama is incredible. It would be fabulous to see this put forth as a play and acted out. Nebuchadnezzar makes an image. It tells us that it's 60 cubits high and it's 60 cubits wide. Here's what that means. It means it's about 90 feet high and about nine feet wide. It is really tall. It is really skinny. It is really, really odd. It's a bizarre looking in terms of the dimensions of uh, there. Now, historians, uh, skeptics, uh, even cynics have said there's no way this story can be true because there's nothing around that would lead us to believe there was some, some sort of an image uh, that would be that high. However, it wasn't too terribly long ago, several years ago as we're doing archaeological digs, we found that there is this giant platform, this huge platform in this exact region of the world that would be perfectly suited to have an image made with these dimensions. Now, when it says it's a pure gold, it does not mean that it is pure gold, meaning that there's nothing else in it. It means that based on all the other idols and, and things that were built in this day and age, it's likely wood that was put together, and then it is overlaid with gold. We don't know what exactly the image looks like. Possibly, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar himself. After all, he had a dream, and he says, uh, hey, interpret this dream, Daniel. Daniel tells him, you are the head. It could be that Nebuchadnezzar, feeling really good about himself as being the head of the statue, decides to build this image as a great representation of his magnificence. It could be that. We don't know that for sure. It might just be another one of the deities that he chooses to, to worship and bow down to. It doesn't really matter. Here's what we know. It is an idol. It is an image that is made. And God had specifically told his people, do not ever bow down before an image. Don't make an image of me. Don't make an image of any other God. Don't bow down and worship it. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And every Jewish person would have known this. They would have recited it every day. So these three guys that are probably likely now somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years old now have a choice to make. This image that has been made, the king comes out, he sends, it says, a herald, the same word is used right here um, in the Greek Septuagint of the word that Paul will use later on as one who is herald of the gospel, one who brings the good news. A herald goes out to the people and he tells them, here's what's gotta happen. When you hear this music, and they go on and list all these instruments, some of which we, uh, we have no idea what they do, some of which we have an idea what they sound like to this day. The bagpipe, I think, it's really cool that the bagpipe is mentioned in this section right here too. All of this music starts to get played. Now, why does he go through the repetition of telling us this? He says, this person, this person, this person, this group of people, they all come in. And so then they were all called for, and then they make their way in. Why, do you, why does he go through all this detail to give us this information twice? I think it's because he's trying to let us know, here are the people who are living in Babylon. They know their place in Babylon. It's listed in the order of importance first, the seven classifications of people. Then it moves down into those that are the least of the important people in the, in the kingdom. And they all make their way in to bow down before this image. Pomp and circumstance, here it comes. Dun, 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 dun. They're walking through, and when they get there, they stand in front of everyone. They have position and power. And when you have position and power in Babylon, you'll bow to whatever God Babylon says bow to. And if you don't bow, 
to the God of Babylon, then there's a price to pay. And you may lose your status and you may lose your power. You may lose your influence. You may lose your spot. You may lose your money. You may lose your reputation. People that serve in Babylon are used to bowing down to the gods of Babylon. It's normative. It's usual. It's expected. They have no problem doing it. But the worshipers of God choose to bow to no one but the God of the universe. How about you? Do you bow to the gods of Babylon? Fame and fortune? Power and influence? What do you worship? And here's what I mean. What has captured your heart? I'm not talking about what takes your fancy away for a moment, you repent of, you come back. I'm talking about what has captured your heart so that you think on it, you dwell upon it. If you, if you can't have it, you're not sure that you can be satisfied in life. They all march in, the music gets going, and according to Nebuchadnezzar's perspective as it's laid out in here, everyone bows down. So he's looking out at the vastness of the kingdom, and as far as he can see, there are people that are bowing down in worship of his God, filling out the order that he gave. He can't see anyone that's not bowing. Now, here's my question to you. Wasn't there a large group of Jewish people that were now a part of this kingdom? What were they doing? Were they bowing down right alongside with the rest of Babylon? Had it become such an easy practice for the people of God to bow the knee of submission to a false God so that they could have their status and their place in Babylon? How could he not notice that millions of people would not have bowed down to this? Scripture doesn't tell us, but here's what I guess. Please take it as that. Thus saith David, I think it's because the church here had gotten so used to living just like those in Babylon, it didn't bother them in the slightest. They didn't live with conviction. They lived out of convenience, and therefore their conscience never really bothered them. How about you? Does your conscience sometimes guide you? I'm not talking about Jiminy Cricket. I'm talking about a bona fide love relationship with the God of the universe who has placed his convictions on you based on the principles of his word that you've said, I've got to live by this. Do you know what your convictions are? Could you carefully articulate for me today how it is that God has pressed in on you how he wants you to live? They could. The rest of the people don't bow down. And so then notice what it says in here. It says that there are some of the people, some of the Chaldeans. It says that certain Chaldeans accused some of the Jews. They didn't accuse them all. They just accused some. Now, here's what they do with the king. They come up to the king and watch this. It's really subtle. They shift the blame now onto the king for his problem that he has created by bringing in the wrong people and putting them in places of leadership. 
uh, the people that you brought in. Oh, king, who we want to live forever and bow. We don't want to say too much because we don't want to eat the fire as well. You know, like you, you have a lot of power here, but I want you to know it is you after all that uh, brought them in. And so the people that you brought in are not bowing down. They're not, they're not respecting you. They don't care about you. They're not thinking about you. They're not your God. They're, they're playing in on his ego. And those that have power have egos, large ones. And history has recorded, hasn't it, that the more power one has, the more someone wants to just lay down that power and serve others, correct? Ah, oh, king, can you believe? What happened to your power right here? The king is furious because he says, it tells us that these certain leaders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not, they're not trying to have their permanent residency in Babylon. They just view themselves as aliens and strangers that are making their way. They view themselves as servants of God that are called by God to bring glory and honor to God while serving in a pagan government, trying to help that government be the best that it possibly can. But they're not interested in bowing down. So when he tells them that this happens, it says that he gets furious. Babylon will always be furious when you don't bow down. Please don't be surprised by that. Please don't be surprised when the world does not say, Woo! Look at your conviction. That's amazing. Fantastic. We applaud you. And you know what? We have now changed our minds. He gets angry, and so now I appreciate this. He doesn't just take it as rumor. He actually goes directly to the source. He doesn't just say, well, it sounds, you know, these people, they did. He goes directly to them. He calls them in. He asks them to their faces, gives them a chance to explain what it is that happened. Is this true? Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, but we're led to believe that they at least had some sort of a nod saying, yes, this is true, because what comes out of his mouth next is this. All right, I'm going to give you a second chance, though. And so we're going to go through this process again. In come people, dun, 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 music, woo, and then I want you to bow down the process. And if you do that, if you follow our direction, if you follow our lead, if you bow down, then you're going to be fine. But if not, I warn you, that fire is ready for you. Now, in one of the most amazing sections of Scripture in all of the Old Testament, let's look at the words of the guys as they respond to him. If you do not worship, and at the end of verse 15, you'll immediately be cast into a burning fire furnace and then look at his arrogance, his utter foolishness. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I got a fire. It's bad. And I don't care what God you serve. No God is going to be able to rescue you from that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said to him, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Here's what that means. Uh, we're not going to draw a whole lot of attention to this. We don't have to have a petition signed. We're not trying to draw attention to all the ways that you have wronged us in the process. We don't have to have the whole world behind us seeing this. We really don't owe you an explanation at all. The God that we serve has placed a conviction on our heart. And I'm just gonna tell you, that's how we're gonna live. We have no need to answer you in here, but here's what we will say. 
If this be so, meaning that God so chooses to, to let us go into the fire, if this is so, if this is our fate, we recognize that we have violated the law and the command that you gave. We understand there's a consequence to it. We readily embrace that consequence. We had civil disobedience. We accept the responsibility for it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. Our God has the ability to spare us in the process. We know that he can, we're not sure if he will. They knew that he could, they were not guaranteed that he would. Our God is able to do it. See, Nezi, there's a couple of things that we remember from the stories of the old. There's this whole sea that parted ways in there. There's a whole bunch of ways in which God showed himself superior over all of the other gods in the process. There's this whole time in which God stopped the sun. Nobody really understands that. Did the earth stop its rotation of the sun? Nobody knows. We just know God did it. We just know that over and over again, God raises people from the dead. God causes the lame to walk. He makes the mute speak. God can do whatever it is that he wants. And if he wants to save us, he can do it. The God that you're asking about, who can save us? His name is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he has been in the business of sparing his people over and over and over and over again throughout human history. He's capable, but he didn't have to. And our worship of him is not dependent upon how much he saves and spares us. Our worship of him is based on the fact that he is. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is so great. Hey, he is going to deliver us. You're asking who's going to deliver I'm telling you, he's going to deliver us one way or the other. He's either going to keep us safe in the fire while we're in there, or he's going to consume our bodies with the flames, and he's going to usher us into his presence. Either way, we're not going to be under your oppressive thumb any longer. God is going to deliver us from you, Jack. You think you're in charge? Let me talk to you about the one who's actually in charge. Now, notice that they're not doing this with attitude. I doubt they're doing it with the volume that I am. I get fired up about it. But if not, if he chooses not to do that, if he chooses to let us burn in this fire, if he chooses to raise us up for a short period of time and then, and then, and then to take us out, if he chooses to make our name great or if he chooses to, to have us live in obscurity, it doesn't matter. If not, if he, whatever it is, know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Why? Because it is a conviction of our lives. Very, very briefly, there are things in life that we can live based on preference, meaning that the choices that we have in front of us have equal moral value, and we simply make a decision based on something we like better. Can I say it to you this way? When do you read the scriptures? Some of you are strange human beings and you get up at odd hours of the morning in order to meet with God early before the sun rises. I am thankful that there, there are those that are out there that are like you. I will not be joining you. 
Others of us stay up way past the time that is reasonable. And this is the time that we meet with the Lord. Well, which one of these is morally superior to the other? Neither. So make a choice based on your preference. I'm better at night. Just way better in the morning. That's why we have no serious conversations before 8 a.m. And none after 9 p.m. It's just a bad idea for us. There are some things that it's just a preference. Do whatever you want. There are some things in life, however, that come down to wisdom. And wisdom means this. We're going to choose one over the other when the two are still relatively, uh, they're similar in terms of their moral value. But we're going to make a decision based on what we believe is the best in the long run. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to choose one thing over another. I'm going to live. I'm going to accept. I'm going to, uh, based on something that I think is going to be best in the long run. That is wisdom based on the principles that are given to us in the scriptures. Would it be sinful to do it? No, but I just don't think it's wise. I used to share this example all the time with high school students. You're dating, you're in high school, dating and you're in college. Let me give you a matter of wisdom. Don't sleep together on the couch, meaning actual sleep. Don't try to spoon. It's not a good idea before marriage. It's a matter of wisdom. It's not a matter of preference. It's not even for many other. Now, then there's this last category, and it's called conviction. Here's what conviction means. It means that God places upon your heart specifically. He may not place it on the heart of everyone else or anyone else. He places on your heart that there is moral superiority between one of these two choices. Not based on these two things in and of themselves, based on his conviction and leading in you. So that for you, this would be better and this would be worse. And so make a decision based on these two things because for you not to do so would be sinning against God. And understand, it doesn't make you more uh, better. It doesn't make you uh, morally superior to others who choose it differently. It just means that for you to disobey this from God would be sin. I have a conviction that God has placed on my heart that if I were to share with you what it is right now, it, it has to happen for me every Sunday. Every Sunday, this is what I would If I were to share with you with that conviction, as you'd say, really? That's silly. I'm just telling you, I've tried to get away from it many times throughout the years, and the Lord keeps pressing back and saying, no, my will for you is this. And when I walk away from it, Something happens inside of me that I can't explain. It's not that God tells me that he's leaving me or abandoning me. It's not that. I'm not saying that. I just get a sense that I'm just not, I'm not living the way God has called me to live. And I just don't have peace. And when I do, oh, there's peace. Randy Pope, a hero of mine, a man that I respect greatly, had to say it this way. It never pays to violate your conscience. It is in the small matters that great victories are won or lost. What, are, what is a conviction right now that the Lord has placed on your heart that you know for other people it might not be sinful, but he's called you to it. And because he's called you to it, you say, Lord, I'm going to respond yes, whatever you say. And for those whose hearts are fully committed to him, those whose hearts belong to Christ, those whose hearts have been handed up and said, Lord, here it is, take and seal it. They can live out of conviction. 
They can live with an understanding that God may not call others to it, but he is calling me to it. And it will never pay to violate my conscience. Let me walk in obedience to God because it is in the small areas of life when we choose to obey, when we choose to say, yes, Lord, that lead to the bigger areas of life. If we are not obedient in the small areas, I assure you the time is coming in which we will fall flat on our faces when the big areas uh, come up in our lives. So get in the habit of listening to the Lord and walking based on the convictions he lays on your heart. The guys, in essence, what they're doing is they're looking and I think they're saying this calmly. I really do. I believe that they're saying this in a manner that's, that's out of control. They're saying, no matter what God chooses to do, we will not bow the knee of submission to the idol. We would rather burn than bow. Is there a parent or grandparent out there that wouldn't want this for their child? Know this, when we live out of conviction, God will show up. God will not always spare us, but God will always give his presence to us. Therefore, when you live out of conviction, although you may be the only person on earth who is choosing to live in this particular lifestyle, you will never, ever, ever be alone because Jesus has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He will give his presence to those who live by conviction. Notice what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, it says the expression of his face is changed, meaning his countenance before them changes completely. He went from, hey, I kind of like you guys, to I can't stand the sight of you. And so he orders them to be bound. Please hear this. The king orders the subjects to be bound so that there's nothing they can do about it. The reason they are bound is because they are not choosing to bow the knee in worship. And he is now casting those who are bound, incapable of getting out of this problem on their own, into a fire. Sound like anything else you've heard in the scriptures? And while this king is one who is going on a power play, one who is deeply insecure, who can actually offer nothing to his subjects whatsoever, there is another king who had the exact same standard who's able to do something about it. So this king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, tells him, I want you to take him and bind him up. And so they bind him up and they, they, they put cloths over him and they bind him with ropes. And then it says that they throw them. Here's what we think is, is the case. Not guaranteed, but we think this. We think that there's this place over by which uh, Nebuchadnezzar will be able to look and see. And down below is this massive space that has this furnace. And so people will be thrown in there. And now his, his anger is burning so greatly, he says, Heat it up seven times. Now, what in the world does that even mean? Like, is it possible to get a, a, a fire seven times more fiery? Like, I don't know what the point of this is. Seven times, oh, he's just, the man's crazy. Now, here's what it actually means. It doesn't mean literally seven times hotter. It means that we're going to make it as hot as we possibly can to the maximum extent that we can make it that way. So they make it that way. And in the process of even making it hotter, those who had bound these men are actually consumed themselves with the heat and the flames. And so then they are thrown into the fire. And the king is saying, this 
is my power. What God is going to save you from me? So I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch this take place. Did you, no, the guys that bound him are dead. Who bound them? Did, anybody, did you see them being bound? Didn't we throw them into the furnace? Weren't there three of them in there? The astrologers channel, they're going, yes, I, we did that. Not knowing what his response is going to be. Yeah, yeah, that, that happened. Then why are there four? And why are they walking without any chains on them? Why are they not bound? And why are they not burning? I have never personally experienced seeing someone thrown into a furnace. A, for starters, I've never seen that. If I had, I doubt that I would see them not being burned, walking around, kind of just hanging out with whoever this fourth dude is. Just walking and resting as they are walking with the fourth person who sure looks like a son of the gods. Now, I, I can't promise you, I, I cannot guarantee you that if God calls you to some type of conviction, that he's going to spare your life. I can't promise you that. What I can promise you is that Jesus is going to be with you. And I really believe with every fiber of my being, that's who the fourth man in the fire is. I cannot prove that. That's thus saith David. That's not thus saith the Lord. I think I really, really, really think and believe it's Jesus based on the rest of the scriptures. Regardless, it's God's presence. Nebuchadnezzar now is seeing right before his eyes the answer to his question. He comes near the door. He declares Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then they came out from the fire and all the you know, puppets saw there, they gather, they see the king's council together, they see that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. Their hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Meaning this, what should have happened did not happen because God chose in this time and this place for this moment to spare them completely of all of the normal natural effects of life. He doesn't always do it, but he did it right here. And so now, Nebuchadnezzar, just, this guy is just so great. I mean, it's like a comic. He goes and he hears about it. He sees this and now he says, whoa, so your God is amazing. Like he is, the God. now I said that last chapter. I know that was a part of it, but I forgot about that. It's a little time had passed, but I got to tell you, now that I've seen this, I'm telling you, he really is way up here. So now anybody who makes any statement whatsoever against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, who is conspicuously absent in this entire story, anybody who says anything against their, 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 uh, their God, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to tear you limb to limb. Like, dude, have you learned anything? Like your, your furies of rage are not helpful. You're not thinking rightly. He just pendulum swing in there. He responds, nothing like that. Now, it sounds like because he's giving intellectual assent to truth, it sure sounds like now he has finally become a believer, doesn't it? Nope. Why? Because his heart has not been fully devoted to the Lord. He's just merely acknowledged the truth. 
Now he's gonna promote them after this. It's not really him that's promoting. It's really God that's working throughout human history, using people in the process. God is putting these people in places so they can accomplish his purposes throughout. He promotes them in here. But, but I wanna close with this. I, I, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar is a believer yet because he has not yet reached the place where he realize, realizes, I need this God. He wants to manage this God along with his other gods. How about you? Have you bowed the knee of submission? Have you approached life from the perspective of God? Whatever you want from me is yours. Whatever conviction you want to lay upon my heart, so be it. If you want me to look like an utter fool in front of the world, so be it. Because I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. You own me. I don't own you. You created me in your, in your image. I'm not, you're not a figment of my imagination. For those whose hearts have been fully committed to the Lord, they can sit in a place, they can rest, they can walk with God and come to a place where they say, Lord, whatever you ask, so be it. I want to beg you. I want to beg you that you would take some time over the next uh, few days, if not weeks, and would you earnestly and sincerely pray and say, God, would you lead me in some areas that you want me to live by conviction? Bowing before an idol was not something they had to pray about. That one was pretty explicitly given in the scriptures. But the reason I think these 20-something-year-olds could not or did not bow the knee of submission is because very early on in the process, they said, we're not going to give in to the food that is offered. We have every reason to believe that all along the way, they were men who were living by conviction, trying to be the best they could for their government, but living out of the way that God had called them to live. If you live by conviction rather than convenience, I promise you this, you will never regret it. You will pay a price, but you'll never regret it. If you live out of convenience, you may be exalted, but your conscience will kill you. Come to Jesus.